Well, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew in the first chapter. My sermon this morning will come from the first 17 verses, so let's hear from the Word of God again together. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, this is God's holy and precious Word to the church. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Obed, and Obed, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Elizer, and Elizer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning amazed and astounded of the precise and carefulness that your word brings to us. We ask that its truth would pierce us and build us up so that we may be transformed to do the work of your Son here on earth as we wait to be with you in the heavens. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, you might say in reading this genealogy, why in the world do we have all of this? And that's a good question. The Old Testament, if anything, is a record book of God's works and God's genealogies. They're they're a fixture of the Scriptures. They are all over the place just practically. The Jewish people were all about genealogies. It, It made them who they were. It made them distinct from who they weren't. 
knowing and accounting for your family was a regular thing, not only in how your family might expand or contract, but how you would even barter or buy things in the marketplace. Who you were related to actually meant something. And it meant everything to these people. On top of this, and most importantly, a king was promised through a certain line, through a certain family, and an offspring was to be delivered. And if anything was going to be presented to them as a king, it was absolutely essential that this king have the right pedigree to prove it. He couldn't just walk in because he was tall or strong and say, I'm the king of this land. They would say, who are you related to? What gives you this right? There are passages of the Bible that we are tempted to quickly move past. And in fact, I would imagine there are many of you who, in even reading some of these words, you don't even want to try to sound them out. You just want to move to where there's another form of the narrative. And most notably, these genealogies are actually like mountains in the scriptures. No one comes up to a mountain and just tries to bypass them. We, we look at a mountain. We marvel at a mountain. We try desperately to conquer or climb those mountains. And Matthew starts out his glorious gospel not only by presenting a king, but by showing where this king truly came from. This king is revealed. And our king all begins with a family tree. If a king is to be heralded as a king, he has to be believed to be a king. He has, to be, he has to have credibility in order to rule and reign over anyone and everything. If anyone is to accept the fact that he, in fact, is a king, then it must start out with the proof of why he's there. There was a royal line in Israel, and it came through the King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said that from the offspring of David, meaning a descendant or an ancestor of David, a king would come who would be Israel's true and eternal king. Now, many people came after David, and they didn't show themselves to be good kings, or they didn't show themselves to be the true kings. They, they certainly didn't show themselves to be an eternal king because they died. And if Jesus is to be the king, then it must be established that he has the right to reign. This is actually the question of the New Testament. Not, not just for church people, but, but for those of you who may not find yourself as a church person. You have to reconcile or reckon with the reality that, that for thousands of years, and even years before that, people have been hoping for a Messiah that presented himself as the person of Jesus, and, and people, church people, call that person the king of the Jews or the King of Kings, or the Lord of Lords, or the Eternal King, and you either have the option to reject Him or to accept Him. Now, to be honest, if you're going to accept Him, it's not just with blind faith. You have to have a reason to accept Him as a King, not just because you want to, or Christmas cards say to, or you went to a children's play and it looked really polite and nice, but you have to have a firm foundation of why Jesus is the King of Kings. Now, for 400 years, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was 400 years where the people of God didn't say anything, at least in recorded history. They were silent because God actually had ceased to speak to them. So all the way from creation, through the writings, through the histories, through the poetries, all the way through the prophets, the people of God were hearing God speak to them mightily. But for 400 years... Longer than our country's even been a country. Longer than that, God just stopped talking to them. And this promise from the beginning of time 
where a king was going to be delivered to save God's people? Don't you know that they would have wondered, did God turn their back towards them? Did his promise actually have nothing behind it altogether? Was it just a big joke and they're just supposed to live somehow or in some way and just to live and let live and maybe things will be okay? The promise from the beginning of time in Genesis 3 verses 15 where the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent, it looked like a lost battle. But here comes the word for us this morning. The promise that was made then is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus the Lord. He is the true king, our scriptures say, but how? Well, you can point to an empty tomb, and that would be good, and that would be true. You could point to the perfect life that he lived. He was perfect and holy in all of his ways, and and that would be good, and that would be true to point out. You could also point to this seemingly anointed or miraculous birth where all of the alignment of what is pure and good seemingly happened on a manger. And that's true. But also along with those things, Jesus was the delivered king and is still reigning as the true king because he is from the kings before him. He was in the right line. When silence was over, when God spoke again about, after about 400 years, he presented his son, the very son of God, as being born in the right line. And so our, our section of scripture shows us a couple of things. So if you are used to using an outline, I'm now at point one. If you're not used to using an outline, it'll just help the sermon go a little bit faster. I'm now at point one where we can recognize from where did Jesus come? Well, he came from the right people. He came from the right people. That's what this genealogy shows us. Now, I'm not going to go through every person in this genealogy section and tell you a story about each of their names, so you can relax on that. But in this genealogy, we have what we call a descending record leading through Joseph to Jesus. So from very old people to now newer people, we have a descending record. And it comes right on down from Abraham to David, descending down through Joseph and now to Jesus. You can also find another genealogy in our scripture in Luke chapter 3, where Luke's genealogy actually does the reverse. It goes from the newest people in the family tree all the way to the older people. It starts with Jesus and goes back through Mary. So in Matthew, you'll see a genealogy through Joseph. And then in Luke, you'll see a genealogy through Mary. One begins with Jesus and one ends with Jesus. But Matthew's genealogy is distinct. And here's why. Matthew's genealogy is distinct from the Luke genealogy because it shows that Jesus has the legal right to be the king. Now, this to me is really, really cool. Matthew makes the case that Jesus is the rightful descendant and heir as king of the Jews because he is the true and the fulfilling king of Israel. Luke argues, instead of from a legal standpoint, Luke argues that he's from the right line or the right blood or he's from the right family side of the tree. Whereas Matthew makes the point pretty tediously that he is the legal right or he is the legal king. Now, now hang on, because I know that you're probably asking, why should I care? Or maybe you're not even asking, you're just saying, I don't care. But here's the difference. The, the royal line, the royal line, Jesus' right to be the king was going to be passed down through the father. It came down through the father, through the person of Joseph. But Jesus had no human father. 
So we look at verse 16. You can just gaze with your eyes. It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, what doesn't this say? It, it doesn't say that Jesus was the son of Joseph, but was the son of Mary. Joseph was not the father of Jesus in a human way. So just in the Christian religion, we believe that our Messiah was delivered by a virgin birth, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Mary gave birth to him, meaning he wasn't from the bloodline of Joseph, but by Joseph adopting this son into his family, he has all the rights and all the responsibilities of this royal, regal line. It would be fascinating for us. Like, you think of who's the coolest king and queen setting in our day? It would be the England, where what if, what if the offspring of the king of England, they didn't have any offspring, but instead they adopted someone into their family? Well, that person, that child who's adopted into their family, they have all the rights that a king would later have. And here we have this carefully displayed to us where Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of Israel by being of Joseph, even though he wasn't from Joseph, but he is still from Mary, and they are both descendants of David. So in order to have the bloodline to reign, he had to be a descendant of David through his mother and also a descendant of David from his father. So I hope that makes sense. By by a blood relation, the line of David through his mother and by a legal standing through his father. And so the line of Mary is also the line of David. So through Mary, so if you look at this, there's this point where if you, and I'm, I would imagine not all of us look at genealogies all the time. I know that there's Ancestry.com, and we've all thought about doing it, but we never do because it costs like 30 bucks a month, and it's like, ah, I don't really care. But if you think, this direct line goes down, down, down to David, and then it splits off, where at the bottom you have Mary on one side, and the bottom you have Joseph on the other side, and they have a baby named Jesus. So here's why this genealogy is important. It's not just because of Mary and Joseph. So this genealogy doesn't just stick out to us because there's Jesus and then Mary and Joseph, but it, it actually goes a lot further back than that. All of these names that I practiced very hard on trying to say them correctly. Even Brooke at one time this week was like, stop, please stop. It's driving me nuts. We look at how it begins. Look it up. Look up at verse 1. It says, the son of David. And look at how it ends in verse 17. It traced through the genealogy of Abraham a promised offspring that we see in Genesis chapter 12, a promised offspring that we hear echoed in Galatians 3 to a king from the line of David, David to captivity, and then captivity to Jesus. Matthew's word traces this royal line through King David, and King David has a son, and that son is Solomon. And Solomon is the ancestor of Joseph, and Jesus is the legal son of Joseph. He's from the right people, but all of these genealogies actually help us with this puzzling dilemma that is found in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, God says that a descendant of David will be the rightful king, but then God later says in Jeremiah 22 that a descendant of Solomon cannot be the king. Jeconiah was so wicked that God cut off that side of the family tree. And a descendant through Solomon cannot be done. But how then would God fulfill this promise to David? Well, by a descendant from another son from Solomon. And that other son from Solomon was the person of Nathan. So we have this this tightly packed, this precise 
carrying forward of God through all of the circumstances that the devil may think that he's won out. God is just showing that he is delivering his perfect king to a needing people, not inheriting the sin of the father, but in the right bloodline of the mother, not inheriting what the mother wouldn't be able to inherit, but inheriting all that the father's side would be able to to inherit. He promised to David. He promised through Solomon. He promised through Mary. And from them, we have the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman. And so his family matters. Legally of David, of the blood of Mary, he came from the right people. Texts like this, while maybe bizarre, or maybe we want to go over them and just get to the birth of Christ, texts like this show that Jesus was rightfully the king. Now, you may wonder about different names of Jesus in your life. You may think of Jesus as the winner of all the, all of the superfluous or superfluous awards that you might have in high school were the most awesome of this or most friendly of that. Jesus is called in the scriptures awesome and sinless and magnificent. And all of those things are true. But the one thing that we can truly say from this text is that Jesus, outside of anyone else, and instead of anyone else, Jesus is the king. That's who we worship. That's who you give your life over to. Not just a friendly person. Not just an awesome Savior, not just a magnificent God, but a King of the world. When all of us are in trouble, we go to someone. Why? Because they have authority. They have authority to stop something bad from happening to us. And so when we go to the Lord with our lives, it's because He is the King. It's because he can look at evil and say, go back. In the same way that he looked at water and he said, part. In the same way that he looked at a storm and he said, stop. So we go to him as a king with all of these titles in him. You can fully place your trust. So friend, if you are not a Christian and you know it, do you believe that you can place your trust in Jesus today? You can place your trust in Jesus, not because Christmas is cool, not because you're from a certain family, not even because you want to, but you can place your trust in Jesus because he is a king. He has authority over everything, and he is a good king. He's from the right family. At the right time, he was delivered for the right people like you. So as you look at these words and as you look at these names, understand what's behind them all the King of kings, and submit yourself to him. Give yourself over to him, we pray. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit, By this, he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect. Hebrews chapter 2 says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. He did all of this and was originally and ongoing to do all of this without sin because Hebrews 7 verse 26 says that he is the high priest. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. But by this, Jesus had no need like other high priests. 
He didn't have to make sacrifices daily or even weekly or even yearly because when he offered himself, he saved people to himself. He withheld the wrath of God from you and I because he took it all on himself and he did this as the king. This totally changes the way that you and I view kings, doesn't it? Kings have authority and nothing can stop them. And Jesus very much does have authority and nothing can stop him, but he placed himself on the altar for you. Won't you give yourself to him today? And if you have given yourself to him, won't you trust him? Knowing that that's the kind of king you trust. Not like a cartoon animal on a TV show, but as a mighty king, as a lion, and also as a lamb. He crushed sin and evil. He justified and delivered his people. He conquered the grave and will soon summon his bride in his new kingdom. And of course, he did all this as the king because he was from the right people. From where did Jesus come? He came from the right people and he came for us, his true people. Secondly, where did Jesus come from? He came from the right promise. He came from the right promise. Number two on your outline, just briefly to circle back at what's been preached here before and even spoken of this morning. Through this genealogy, Jesus is the ancestor of the promise that was given in Genesis 3. When evil struck the world, remember God looked at Satan and said, I will deliver someone who will crush your head, meaning I will defeat you. I will eliminate you. I will blot you out. And here we see the outcome of that promise. As Matthew introduces Jesus, he quickly reveals several names and titles. Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David there in verse 1. Therefore, the king of the Jews, we see in chapter 2, verse 2, and in chapter 2, verse 6, he is the Christ there in verse 1 and in chapter 2, verse 4. First and best, he is Jesus. God with us, he is presented as being the only one who is capable of saving us. What this book brings about to our understanding. And Jesus was given the name Jesus. And in the Hebrew, it's Joshua. And what Joshua means in the Hebrew text is the Lord is salvation, or Yahweh saves. That's who's presented in this long line. The name Joshua reminds us of the person of Joshua. How marvel. Now, Joshua, who succeeded Moses, led Israel into the promised land. And in that day, the Lord saved his people physically and materially by giving them their land and ending their years of a wilderness wandering in pursuit. He, he saved them into a new lifestyle. But Jesus doesn't save that way, our text says. He went further. He did not save Israel from military enemies or from physical danger. Those things that happened in the Old Testament were a foretaste at the gravity in this spectacular showing of what Jesus was going to do. In the Old Testament, God wanted on his, people, on his people's behalf to eliminate the things around them that would keep them from worshiping him. But what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus came in order to not just eliminate things outside of us, but actually to change the very nature of us. By his incarnation, Jesus addresses the problem that lies at the root of all pains and sorrows. He came to save people from themselves. Our scriptures are clear that all of us are naturally sinful. This is what is called original sin, meaning that you and I inherit many things from our parents, not just hair color, not just height, 
not just anger or maybe cool hobbies, but what we really inherit from our parents is original sin. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. But not only do we start off negatively, you and I pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue the things of our flesh rather than the things of heaven. And what Jesus comes to do is not just eliminate the things in our lives or not just to tell us who we are, but actually to remake us. And by reshaping us, or what the Bible calls regenerating us or converting us, it it is like what would happen in a heart operation, but not just fixing what is inside the heart, but actually transplanting the whole heart altogether so that we are a new person by the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came from a noble line here. But if we look hard enough, we see that this noble line isn't altogether that noble. Many of these kings were faithful men. Still, even among them, there is a bit of faithfulness, but still within them, there is a committed pursuit of awful sins. Jehoshaphat entered into unholy alliances. Hezekiah, in pride, showed treasures of Israel to enemies so that those enemies would come and take those treasures. Like a terrible king. Here's the password to the vault. Uzziah, after years of successful rule, became proud in himself, thought he was the answer to everyone's life, and dared usurp the role of a priest. He took on a whole other pursuit that was not given to him. About half of these kings that were presented in this text are wicked people. Ahaz, for example, worshipped Assyrian gods and sacrificed humans. Not just animals, but humans. Killing one of his own sons. Ahaz wasn't alone, though. Rehoboam and Jeconiah were bad too, and Manasseh was worse. Second Kings, verse, or Second Kings chapter 21 says that the Lord drove Manasseh out of Canaan because he did more evil than the evil nations. So Jesus' genealogy includes great kings and sleazy sinners. But Jesus did not come to praise his ancestors. Just like Jesus did not come to praise your past or to elevate how good your sinful soul was or to just encourage you. But rather, Jesus came for these people in the same way that he comes for us. He comes to save. Now, if you doubt this, look at the, the four, if you doubt just the totality of the sinful nature in this genealogy, look at the other four women who appear in the genealogy. You may think that the women are just randomly inserted into this family tree, but they actually form a balance of chaos in the family. It wasn't just that here was a couple of bad dads who just kept having bad sons. It was that from people within the family and outside of the family were also bringing havoc to this line. It wasn't just family members, but also foreigners. It wasn't just men, but also women. It was everyone showing the totality of sin has impacted everyone where the seed of the serpent has affected even people like you and me. And so we demand the seed of the woman to ultimately come and save us. Looking at Jesus' genealogy, it's quite clear that he comes from a human line. That's why there are men and women in here. That's why there are kings and foreigners alike, so that we, when we look at this genealogy, we actually see it a reflection of humanity, where we can almost place ourselves right in there and say, yes, I am as bad as they were, and I need saving too. 
In verses 11 and 16 of this genealogy, it shows that Israel was suffering the consequences of its own sin. The borders of Israel had failed to hold true. The land was conquered. Leaders were being deported, and the people were declared pitiful. Jesus' family lost their rank as kings. Imagine this. You're from the true line that's supposed to be the king of the world, and you blow it. Like everything good has been given to you, and you ruin it. And then your kids ruin it. And then your grandkids ruin it. Until ultimately they lost their rank as kings. They lost their wealth and property. They lost their identity. But these people are the people who Jesus came to save then and now. You and I might have low lives in our families. Or you and I might be the low life in your family. You know, we always go to the family reunion and we talk about that uncle or that aunt and then we recognize, am I that uncle? Am I that aunt? And in our sinfulness, the one thing that we have in common is that we all need saving work done in our lives. A couple of things that this part of the text brings to the top is that godliness is not inherited from our ancestors. That someone within our family We might want to save us. It actually takes someone outside of our family. Someone from heaven to ultimately come and save us. This is a damning indictment on our generation altogether. As we often think of who we're related to as bringing us importance. But in reality, all it does is place us in the same army that needed salvation altogether. And what we really need is someone from outside of us to save us. And that person was delivered. The seed of the woman came to conquer the seed of man. Secondly, not only does this teach us that godliness is not inherited, but also this teaches us that God always keeps his word. When he made his promise through Isaiah to Abraham, to David, to Eve, the Lord does not play lightly with his promise. Most notably to Eve with this promise of deliverance, where when looking at the devil himself, God said that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. In the coming of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of Eve, he came from that promise. So where did Jesus come from? Well, he came from the right people, but he also came from the right promise. This was something that they should have been looking forward to for a long time, even though the silence was ever in their midst. This should have been something that had been on the forefront of their taste buds as they were longing to sing and see the salvation that they had been promised years before. So you and I can look at this text and we can see that God has always kept his word. And so we can have promise and confidence that God will always keep his word. That there's no reason for us to lose heart, even though the world seems to be slipping so drastically from our fingertips because the Lord who promised his deliverer then and fulfilled it in the person of Jesus also very much and very truly promises that one day he will return for his people and he will bring them forever to himself. So Jesus came from the right people. He came from the right promise. And then lastly, he came for the right purpose. Learn lastly from this genealogy that in the great mercy and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ, he came for the right purpose. And that purpose was to save men and women. Think how defiled and unclean our nature is. Think of just us on a value standard of of what we really equal. 
of how much damage we've done to the glory of God or even towards one another, breaking the first and the second commandment. But then remind yourself of the reality of what a condescension it was in Jesus to be born of a woman and made in the likeness of men, taking on the flesh that makes us look bleak so that he would replace us on the cross and so that we would be saved forever. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. For all of the names listed before us, there is one in name that captures us, Jesus the Christ. What's amazing, you might know, is that in all the genealogies that our Old Testament has, and in the two genealogies that our New Testament has, once Jesus' name is written, there are no more genealogies. The fulfillment has been delivered. The King has been presented. The Messiah, the mediator, is now before the people. The longing hope that, that they were begging to see face to face is now being presented to them. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see made in the likeness of men. We should always read this directory with thankfulness. J.C. Ryle, a late theologian, says, Our sins may have been as dark and awful as those of any whom Matthew names, but they cannot shut out the brilliance and the brightness of heaven. If we repent and believe in the gospel, we can place our names next to those other names, but we will be written down not as a descendant of David, but as a son and daughter of the king. One of the great confessions of the Christian faith called the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? First of all, What a question. You only have to be 400 years old to be able to ask a question like that. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception of the birth of Christ? What benefit do you and I receive from the incarnation of Jesus? And honestly, that's the right question we should be asking and answering this Christmas season. Why did Jesus come? Well, in part for the glory of God, but also in part for the benefit of God's people. Now, my late grandmother spent a lot of time looking at our family genealogy. She even wrote a book, which is actually just a paper book, but it has a lot of cut-out pictures, and it's fun to flip through. And all of these ancestors of my grandma, both on my grandpa's Danish side and my grandmother's English side, meant a lot to my grandma. It was cool, and some of these people are semi-famous. And even though we're like an eighth uncle away from Daniel Boone. It's cool to be able to say, you know, like, I'm kind of like Daniel Boone. Like, when I go mow my yard, that's kind of what Daniel Boone would do today. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Like, me being related, kind of, to Daniel Boone or another person who sailed across the ocean, I get nothing from that. Brooke's family, however, Brooke is actually a card-carrying member of a Native American tribe in Oklahoma, which actually means she gets stuff, right? Her license plate is $40, mine is $90. She can drive down to Shawnee anytime she wants and get free health care. There are benefits in being related to the people that she's related to. So what benefit do we receive from the incarnation of the birth of Jesus? See the purpose of his coming. He is presented to us. He is the Christian's mediator. 
He's the Christian's mediator. Write that down. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Jesus' purpose is to be our mediator. This doctrine describes how the Son of God took our place to pay the price for human sin, obtain forgiveness on our behalf, and gives us new life because of it, and now stands before the Father and advocates on our behalf pleads and prays for his own people. A mediator is one who stands in between. This theological concept for Jesus' mediation, according to Christian teaching, is the reality of human rebellion and estrangement from God, but now being seen as his. Everyone who has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, now God looks at those people and sees his own by the work of Jesus. So our benefit in being a son or a daughter of Jesus, the benefit that we receive in the incarnation of Jesus is that one, we will never face God's wrath and we will always face God's love. Looking right at us, accepting us as his own because Jesus Christ is the mediator between himself and man because of his incarnation. Second, another benefit that we get, we not only have Jesus as our mediator, but from Jesus' birth, he becomes our propitiation. Our propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Spell it out, write it down, Google it later. Jesus is our propitiation, meaning Jesus' innocence and perfect holiness covers our sinfulness in the sight of God. My sin in which I was conceived and lived out, is not seen by the holy, righteous judge of the world. God's just, God's just wrath towards sinners is satisfied through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and he can only be the sacrifice if, if he's perfect. And Jesus came perfectly, not only from the right people, not only from the right place, but also in perfection by inheriting no sin, yet in our case, made himself to be sin. First Peter chapter 1 says, You are ransomed from the futile ways with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that's what you inherit. That's the benefit of Jesus coming for you. The wrath of God is turned away and the righteousness of God is robed around you like an inheritor of the throne. The benefit of Jesus being our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covering us in the sight of God, my sin in which I was conceived and born is never to be known by him. Jesus came from a royal line. He came from the right people. He came to fulfill the right promise in order to carry out the right purpose to save God's children. So in conclusion, we see a unique beginning to a gospel of the narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. Name after name after name after name after name. This prologue for Matthew's gospel tells the reader who Jesus really is. In the rest of the book, you would see leaders, crowds, disciples, even demons wrestle with this truth. Who is Jesus and where did he come from? This genealogy sets the tone of not only the book, but also of the next epic narrative, the birth of the Son of Mary, Jesus Christ. And this was no ordinary birth because it was no ordinary baby. 
but this is the arrival of the long-expected Messiah, the anointed one in the line of ancestry from Abraham and David and through Joseph being born of Mary. In the balance of seeing God as truly man and truly God, we marvel at what seems to show itself here, the careful precision of a loving God who sent a son for sinners such as us. Joy has dawned upon the earth, promised from creation. God's salvation now unfurled, hope of every nation, not with fanfares from above, not with scenes of glory, but a humble gift of love, Jesus, born of Mary. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we marvel at every single word of your word. Because for us, it means salvation. For us, it demonstrates your love and your glory and your goodness. And so we pray that you would gift us a deeper understanding of such a love as this. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. O Lord, may you make our church announcers of that hope this Christmas season. May we long to love and to serve because you loved and you served. We pray this in his name. Amen.